Amen. This morning we're continuing our series in uh, 1 Samuel. We're going to be in Samuel chapter 4. We'll look at the whole chapter. Uh, but as I was reading uh, this chapter and, and the next couple chapters we're looking at next week, um, it had me thinking about a, a movie, um, specifically Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, so uh, I do want to give a quick spoiler alert. Um, if you, this movie's been out for a while, uh, but if you uh, are like, oh, I was going to watch it tonight, uh, you know, leave for two minutes and come back because uh, I'm going to reveal the whole plot. Okay. Here's the thing. This movie is, is bonkers. Like, I, I feel like when I watched it when I was younger, I didn't really like fully understand what was going on. Uh, but I watched it recently with my, recently with my kids, and uh, I was like, wow, this is a wild movie. Because the, the plot of the movie is that it's set in World War II, and the Nazis uh, want to capture the Ark of the Covenant. They want to find the Ark of the Covenant so they can carry it into battle, like a super weapon. Okay? They want to use the Ark of the Covenant as a super weapon. They want to carry it into battle. Um, and of course, there's all this like where Indiana Jones, he finds it first, uh, but then they capture it back. There's all this back and forth. And then they get to an island where Indiana Jones is now captive and the Nazis are going to test the super weapon, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and they open it up and, uh, and it, it kills them, right? Their faces melt off and everything. And it's like this crazy scene. The Ark of the Covenant kills them. Okay. So the plot of that movie, this idea of like using the ark as a super weapon, um, is actually like found in our passage today. It's true. I know you don't believe me, but luckily we're going to read it. So here we go. All right. Samuel chapter four, verses one through 11. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of Yahweh here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of hosts, who is enthroned above the, on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of Yahweh had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Okay, I first want to address the, this, this, the first half of verse 1, uh, where it says, The word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Uh, when we read uh, Scripture, it's important to remember that the chapter and verse headings 
uh, were added later. They're not the content of the original authors, right? The, Israel, the authors didn't sit down and go, chapter one, verse one. You know, they, that's not like how they, they didn't write those in. Those were added later. And sometimes the people that added them made mistakes. This is one of those instances because this portion of the verse clearly belongs with the previous section. Uh, if we look at chapter three, verse 21, it says, Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh, for Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. And then we can clearly see that then it should say, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. He's just kind of explaining how this prophecy thing works, that God speaks to Samuel, Samuel speaks to Israel. That's how the word is disseminated. And, and so that, that's just breaking that down. Then we clearly jump to a new section where we're talking about this battle. The battle specifically against the Philistines, who are going to be Israel's primary foe throughout this entire book. Uh, and they're a good match for Israel. They're not like the Egyptians or the Babylonians where they have vastly greater numbers or anything like that. They're a pretty good match. They do have superior weapons. And, and the Philistines secure a victory in their first showdown, right? This first showdown that they have, uh, they secure a victory. 4,000 4, um, Israelites die, and the Israelites are shocked. They can't believe that they lost. And they ask a good question. They ask a good, a theologically astute question. Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Notice, they don't say, how, how come the Philistines win? They say, they say, how did the Philistines defeat us? They say, how did Yahweh defeat us? Why did Yahweh defeat us before the Philistines? Right? Why do they ask this question? Because they recognize that God is the key to their victories or losses. Right? They know because when they came into the promised land, they beat many nations. They, did, they had victory in battle over many nations, many battles they should have lost. They miraculously won because God was on their side. So they know now if we lost, it's not that the Philistines beat us, it's that God beat us. Right? God is the one who's defeated us. He's the one who didn't give us victory. He must not be on our side at this point. And so they decide to uh, use the Ark of the Covenant. They say, well, we got to get the Ark of the Covenant. We got to bring it into battle with us. Just like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right? They're like, we need the super weapon. We need to bring it in and take it into battle with us. That will give us the victory. But they want to bring the Ark of the Covenant. And they do. They bring it down from Shiloh. They have Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. They're also priests. They carry it. They're going to carry it into battle with the, with the Israelites. And they think, surely, if we have the Ark of the Covenant with us, we will have victory. Right? The Ark of the Covenant will grant us victory miraculously. Like, magically, we'll win because we have the Ark of the Covenant with us. But they missed the key part of that title, right? The Ark of the Covenant. It's the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant which they were not keeping. And it is very clear here in that the author here of 1 Samuel wants us to see this because the author specifically says over and over and over again the Ark of the Covenant and gives it various titles, right? The Ark of, the, uh, the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. It's saying this is his throne. He is the... He is the Yahweh of hosts. He is the one who's over all of these things, and yet they're just trying to carry it in to give them miraculous victory. Quick and easy 
fix to the problem that they're having, but they don't need an easy, quick fix. They need to go back to the covenant that they have broken. Because their covenant requires something of both sides. We see in Deuteronomy 31, where it says this, Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before Yahweh your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear Yahweh your God and be careful to do all the words of this law that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear Yahweh your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. They are meant to know and do this covenant. That is how they will be blessed, is if they know and do the covenant. But God knew that they wouldn't. God knew ahead of time that they wouldn't, and he tells Moses what will happen when they don't, and Moses writes it down. Deuteronomy 31, we jump ahead to verse 16 and 17. Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I'll forsake them and hide my face from them that they may be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they may say it, they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. If they had read this, if they had done what they were told to do and read this law and heard it regularly, they would know why they lost. They would know why the Philistines defeated them. Because this exact thing that God said would happen is what was happening. If they walked away, if they went after foreign gods, they would be defeated. They would have all kinds of trouble come among them. They should have known what was happening. Instead, they decide to get the ark and carry it into battle like some kind of magical object. Right? Instead of going back to the covenant that that ark carried, instead of opening it up and, and reading what's inside, and knowing and doing what it said, instead of that, they choose to just carry it into battle like it's going to give them some kind of miraculous victory. And when it comes into camp, the Israelites are excited, right? They, they know what it is. They're excited that it's there. They think it's going to give them victory. They give this big cheer, and the Philistines hear it, right? It's like a, this distant cheer. They know what's going on over there. It's like every time uh, I go to a baseball game when I go to the bathroom, there's a big cheer. <sighs> Something happened, of course, when I was gone. Right? That's, that's what they hear. They hear this cheer go up. They go, Something happened. Right? Something happened over there. What is it? They kind of investigate. Maybe they send some spies or something. They learn that this has happened. They go, A God has come into the camp. Right? And they're terrified. They're terrified of this because, because uh, the God of Israel has a reputation. Right? They, they mentioned the Egyptians. They go, this is the God that got them out of Egypt that brought all these plagues. Like They know about this God, although they call it gods because, they, again, they're not that familiar. 
But it's not enough to make them retreat. Right? They, they tell each other, like, hey, we got to just fight like men. We, gotta, we can't abandon this. We can't let this defeat us. we got to fight like men. And they do, and they win. Right? The Philistines win in astounding fashion. Right? The results of this battle are terrible for the Israelites. 30,000 foot soldiers die. The Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. Right? That's like the, the opposite of what they wanted to happen. They wanted this Ark to, to give them the power to defeat the Philistines. Instead, 30,000 of them die. The Ark is captured. And the two priests die that, that were carrying it. It's not a good day for them. And what we see in this passage is that God will not be manipulated. Right? The, the Israelites believed they could utilize the Ark of the Covenant for their own ends without abiding by the covenant that it carried. And we too should be careful not to place our faith in objects of our faith as opposed to God himself. We see this in our day and things like people that, you know, maybe like you wear a cross and you feel like, oh, that's giving me power. It's always giving me good luck. Or it's giving me protection. It's giving me something. It's not giving you anything. It's the God that it represents that's giving anything to you. And it's not wrong to wear a symbol of your faith. But when we put our faith in that symbol instead, and we put our faith and say, like, if I wear this, then I get good fortune, then I get good luck. No, it's if you're not following him, if you're not obeying, if you're not going after him, that doesn't mean anything to you. That doesn't do any good for you whatsoever. We have things like, even I have people that, that will like come, usually not church members, but there'll be people that randomly will like stop by the church and like ask to come and pray in here. And I always say yes, like I'm not, uh, I'm not opposed to it, but it doesn't, it's not like when it comes to prayer, it's not like, oh, you get better bars in here. You know, it's, there's nothing special, like pray wherever you're at. There's nothing special about praying here. Like if you want it as just a quiet place to pray or like if it's good, practically speaking, then that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't give you like special. It's not like, well, if you pray here, you're more likely for your prayers to get answered. No, there's nothing special about it in that way at all. We cannot manipulate God to our own ends. If we're going to use symbolic objects in our worship, they should be reminders of God's power and goodness, not seen as possessing his power. And it's true that the very presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle and the temple, but it was not due to their physical properties. This was God's choice to reveal himself and to dwell among the Israelites. And when they walked away from him, his presence would leave. It wasn't that the building was so special that he couldn't help but dwell there. That was just his choice. In general, we should recognize and seek God's will, not our own will. We should not try to make our own will happen by manipulating God. We should look for what he wants. Because even when our ideas are good, they're not necessarily God's. Even when our idea, when we have really good ideas, we think, oh, well, I want to do something good. I want to make something good happen. You know, how come God won't bless that thing that I want to happen? Because it's a good thing. Yeah, but it might not be his idea. And that would be what he wants to happen. We should look for his will, not our own. We'll look here next, verses 12 through 22. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. 
When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told all the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So this man from the tribe of Benjamin escapes the battle. He comes back to report the news in Shiloh. And Eli's waiting for the report. Tells us he's anxious about the ark having been taken into battle. And, And maybe he's also anxious about his sons. I mean... He had just heard this news that uh, he had just received this prophecy that his sons would die on the same day. And now they're walking into battle. Like that's a pretty good formula for both of them to die on the same day. So he's anxious about this, anxious about the fact that the, the ark went into battle. And he hears the report that his sons are dead and that the ark has been captured. And at hearing this report, He falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and dies. Meanwhile, the wife of Phinehas, she hears the report as well. It's one of Eli's two sons, his his daughter-in-law, hears the report and immediately goes into labor, right? The stress of it, of this news, makes her go into labor, and she dies in childbirth. No, it doesn't even like tell us that she, that something went wrong, right? It's just like she gives birth and about the time of her death, right? Yeah, like obviously she's going to die here. Right? This is not a good situation. She dies in childbirth. Before she dies, she names her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. What a name to give your son, right? The glory has departed names him after this event that is just a devastating, the worst day that anyone alive could remember. Because she recognized that God had had executed this severe judgment that day, right? 30,000 soldiers dead, the high priest and his sons dead, the Ark of the Covenant captured. It's clear to her, it's clear to everyone that God had executed a staggering judgment on Israel that day, right? So, you know, what an upbeat message, right? So go out and fight your battles, right? No, I, that's, this isn't one of those messages, right? I want to I wanna wrap us up here, this last, this last section. I want to 
take this incident and answer a question that no one ever asks, which is, uh, why do bad things happen to bad people? Okay? So everyone, I mean, people will regularly ask, why do bad things happen to good people? But it's just as important, and maybe more important for us to answer the question, why do bad things happen to bad people? Because that's what happens here, right? God's executing judgment on Israel, a judgment that he told them he would execute before they even went into the promised land. He's like, hey, you, if you go into the promised land, here's how you need to live. You need to obey my covenant. You need to, to follow me. You need to not go after these foreign gods. But listen, I know you're going to. And so here's what's going to happen when you do. Then you're going to suffer defeat. You're going to have all kinds of trouble. Right? He tells them all this stuff. And now this has happened. So they did bad things. Bad things happened to them. But when we hear that, and when we read stories like this in the Old Testament, it's very easy for us to miss the context and to get it twisted when it, we apply it to our own lives, right? Like right now, if, we just end, if I just ended that, this right now and just let you go home, and then on the way home, you get a flat tire, you might rightly ask the question like, what did I do? Right? What did I do? If, if the Israelites abandon the covenant and then get defeated in battle, then when something bad happens to me, does that mean I did something wrong? That's probably a question that many of you have actually asked in your life. Something bad happens. You're like, is, this, is God punishing me right now? Like, what is happening? What, if, if something bad happens to me, does that mean that I did something bad? Does that mean God is punishing me in some way? And the reason that we often ask that question is because we get these old covenant stories twisted into our new covenant reality, our new covenant lives. Under the old covenant, this was the deal, right? That when we read these accounts, we have to remember that God is doing something unique and special with Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20, we can read, we read this a couple of weeks ago, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you today, by loving Yahweh your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Right? So if you obey, good things will happen to you. You'll be blessed in the land that I'm taking you into. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but you are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving Yahweh your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. That you may dwell in the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Right? God had made this covenant with Israel. If they obeyed him, if they obey his commandments, then they would live and multiply and prosper in the promised land. He would drive away Gentile nations before them. He would give them miraculous victory in battle. But if they did not, they would not live long in the land. Right? They would perish Things would go badly for them. Their crops would fail. They would be defeated in battle. But this is God speaking to Israel. When you read that passage and it says you, it doesn't mean you. It doesn't mean you can't read that and go, oh, me? Who, me? Oh, if I do this, 
then God will bless me, right? If I, like, no, these promises are not for you. These promises are for Israel. These promises are not for you. As a new covenant believer in Jesus Christ, God has made you no such promises. When I say this, I mean, God has not promised you any land. Okay? He has not promised you victory in battle. You can't, you know, get your, uh, arm your family and go to the edge of your property and go like, charge! And just like, <laughs> go to your neighbor's house and like, wipe them out and go like, we have claimed this, that God has given us victory. Right? No, you'll be arrested. That's not how it works. Right? That is literally what the Israelites did. Right? God told them, go and take this land and I'll give you miraculous victory in battle. And it happened. But that's not our promises. He's not promised you any land. When we sing songs like, like we sang that song today, it's called Heal Our Land. Right? God, would you hear our cry? God, would you heal our land? When we sing that, I think it's pretty clear to everybody that we're like being figurative, right? We mean heal our land figuratively, like that we mean like, the, like turn the hearts of people back to him to bring back morality and things like that. That's what we mean when we sing that. But we pull those kind of lyrics from places like the Psalms where it's talking about heal our land. They ask God to heal our land. When they say it, they're being literal, they literally mean heal our land. We need our crops to grow. Bring back fertility to the soil. Give us rain so that our crops will grow. When, when the Old Testament, when they talk about heal our land, they mean the dirt. Okay? That's what they literally mean because these were the promises. These promises were earthly promises about land, victory in battle, all of these things. They're not our promises. They're not new covenant promises. Now, do we get any earthly benefit from obeying God? Yes. But not in this way, not in this miraculous kind of way. Right? Living by God's commands live, and obeying Him um, is the wisest way to live. Right? It's, it's the wisest way to live. It's living by God's design. So does that result in blessing? Yes. But it's in the way of we follow God's design and then things work the way that He says they're going to work. Right, if we do something, take an example of just like obeying the Ten Commandments, right? If you obey the Ten Commandments, were things going to go better for you? Yes, because in general, if you don't cheat on your wife, you have a better life than if you do, right? If you don't steal things, you have a much less likely of having people after you and, and going to jail and things like that, right? If you observe Sabbath rest, are you like healthier and you have a better life? Yes. Right? There are practical things of like God designed this life so then when he gives us the commands, if we obey them, is it more likely that things will go better for us than not? Yes. But not in this, not in this way that we're talking about the old covenant where things like miraculous victory in battle. Right? That's not what we're talking about here. There are earthly benefits from obeying God. But when we talk about new covenant benefits, blessings, new covenant blessings, are a little bit different because these old covenant promises to Israel have all to do with earthly benefit. Land, crops, military victory. New covenant promises are a little bit different. Let's take an example. Matthew. There should be Matthew 24. There we go. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. 
you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's an example of a new covenant promise. Notice there's promises there. You will They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus promised that these things would happen. And yet, I hear Christians all the time who go like, I can't believe that people don't like Christians anymore. I can't believe that people, that they're persecuting Christians. Wow, how can this happen in America? Well, because Jesus promised it would happen. You're He's just fulfilling new, new covenant promises. Right? You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. All nations. There will be persecution. You'll be put to death. Right? These are opposite. This is almost the opposite promise that he gave the Israelites. He gave the Israelites, if you obey me, I will give you miraculous victory in battle. He told the disciples, if you proclaim my name and do what I say, they'll put you to death. And then it happened. Right? They obeyed him, they proclaimed his name, and almost every one of the apostles died a martyr's death. Right? Sometimes brutally. Right? There was no promise that God would rescue them from those situations. We have a few examples in the book of Acts of disciples getting like miraculously freed from prison. But that's to fulfill God's purposes for them. Eventually, all those guys did get captured and killed, not because they weren't obeying God, but because they were obeying God. And then we do have promises not for this life, but for the next life, like we find in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, where he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go, would I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. These are the promises, these are the blessings that Jesus has promised us. He's promised us that he is going to prepare a place for us, that he's going to come back for us and take us back with him, that he will come and restore all things. He will come back and make all things right again. These are New Testament promises. New covenant promises is for the next life, not for this one. There are certainly natural blessings that come with living life the way God designed it, but we can't get the old covenant confused with the new covenant. We have to recognize that the new covenant is actually better than the old covenant. That's not my opinion. That's scripture. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there had been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their, into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. 
They shall not teach each one his neighbor, for each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant involved temporary earthly blessings, but the blessings of the new covenant are eternal. And God will still fulfill the promises he made to Israel that is still coming. That's what we mean when we talk about Jesus' millennial reign, that when he returns, he will rule and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. He'll fulfill these promises that he made to Israel. But the promises of the new covenant are what we hold to. So it's not about us doing good so that then we will prosper. It's about proclaiming his name and his victory in the eternal realm, not in, not in this one. It's about him having victory over Satan, sin, and death by defeating them on the cross and then us going and making that proclamation. And that will involve some trouble while we're here on earth. But the promises that he is going to fulfill for us are greater. So we'll wrap up with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, put your hope in God, not in symbols of God. Our hope must be in him, not in representations of him. If we're looking to honor him, if we're looking to follow him, we should look to our relationship with him, not in symbols of him. Number two, recognize that God's plan is bigger than you. Right? To some extent, that's what the problem with the Israelites was here. They didn't catch what was going on in the bigger sphere. They were just thinking about today's battle, not recognizing God had already been working. They had already walked away from him. And number three, rejoice in the new covenant. I think sometimes we get so mixed up with the old covenant and the promises of, of blessing here. Sometimes we try to make our lives better by like obeying him and, oh, if I do good things, God will do good things for me and he'll bless me. And you know, that's a lot of the prosperity gospel is based on taking the old covenant and dragging it into the new covenant. But we should be rejoicing and, and be excited that we have a better covenant than what he was offered, that was offered to the, the Israelites, that, that the eternal blessings that are to come are far greater than anything we could go through here. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and we'll take communion together. We'll sing one final song after that. There'll be a prayer team available right over here. If you'd like prayer for anything, they'd love to pray for you. Just come on up after the service. It's not a big, like, oh, people will see you kind of thing. It's everyone, everyone else will leave and that kind of thing, and they'd love to pray for you. If you'd like prayer, please come see them. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we thank you that uh, we do have the new covenant, that because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we can find forgiveness, we can find new life, we can be indwelled by your spirit, that we might live for you. And I pray that you would empower us and, and encourage us to do that this week, that we might share your love with everyone we encounter. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.